Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Volcanoes have been much in the news of late, with eruptions in Hawaii, Guatemala, and most recently in Bali. You may know that Yellowstone National Park sits on a so-called supervolcano, 44 miles wide. An eruption of this caldera volcano, as scientists call it, is very unlikely, but potentially catastrophic. We'll talk about volcanoes in general, and the Yellowstone supervolcano specifically today. Our discussion will include the different types of volcanic eruptions, and therefore the different kinds of dangers. Also predicting volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, and the latest science of volcanoes and earthquakes. And we'll talk about the Yellowstone geysers and hot springs. Our guests include Michael Poland, scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor in the University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics and chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Well, let me jump in with uh, Mike Polland. You are at uh, the U.S. Geological Survey's Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Uh, Some people may not know that there is a volcano observatory at Yellowstone. Yeah, actually, one of the things that makes the Yellowstone Observatory pretty unique is that it's not just the USGS. It's actually a consortium of groups. It's uh, the University of Utah and the National Park Service and the University of Wyoming, a group in Colorado called UNAVCO that works with GPS data, and then the state geologic surveys of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. So there's really a lot of scientists with a lot of different expertise that are focused on Yellowstone through the observatory. I want to read uh, from Joe Lockenbach in the Washington Post. This is from a couple of months ago, uh, quoting him. Yellowstone National Park sits squarely over a giant active volcano. And Yellowstone has been a national park since 1872, but it's only the 1960s that scientists realized the scale of the volcano, 44 miles across. Um, and I guess worst case scenario, let, well, let me ask you about the scope of this. I'll start with uh, Mike Poland here. You mean the scope of the, the, the volcano? The scope of the volcano, it's yes. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's the largest volcanic system in the world. Uh, it feeds the largest hydrothermal system in the world uh, above it. So there's an awful lot of hot rock uh, beneath Yellowstone. Um, and that's, uh, it's something that took a while to be recognized only because the scope of it was so big. It took uh, geologists getting in there and mapping out the extent of these large ash flows from hundreds of thousands and, and millions of years ago to recognize the, the real size of this thing. It's, it's really pretty impressive. It's hard to get a sense of it when you're on the ground. Jimmy Farrell, uh, you gave a presentation here at USU oh, a couple of years ago um, as a part of a series of, uh, you know, apocalypse, apocalyptic scenarios. Um, and you talked about Hollywood's depiction and the reality might not be the same. But I guess worst-case scenario here, what what could happen? This went totally bad here. Well, let me preface that a little bit. So um, where Yellowstone currently sits um, in the northwest corner of Wyoming with a little bit, little, little bit of Yellowstone National Park going into Idaho and Montana, um, where it currently sits, we've had three um, major caldera-forming eruptions in the last 2.1 million years. Um, we had one in two, 2.1 million years ago. There's another one um, 1.3 million years ago. And then the latest um, caldera-forming eruption about 630,000 years ago. Um, since then, there's been a number of um, quote-unquote smaller eruptions that put out rhyolite flows that have since um, filled in uh, the caldera. So 
Yellowstone produces both really big eruptions and it produces smaller ones. Now, um, the smaller ones are much more likely to occur um, than the big ones, but if, you know, if the past is any key to the future, um, there is a potential for another large um, caldera-forming eruption, and it would definitely, um, you know, have a lot of impacts, and not just the immediate area, but the uh, uh, United States as a whole, and um, in a sense, the whole world as far as um, global temperature. Mike Pollan, anything you'd like to say on this, on a worst-case scenario, which is a very unlikely, I guess, could happen, uh, what, what would happen in, in that case? Yeah, I think Jamie's got it right, that the worst-case scenario would be another big caldera-forming event like has happened uh, from this system three times in the last two million years. Um, I think it's worth noting, though, that uh, some people ascribe uh, this sort of event to kind of a global extinction sort of thing, and it would be a catastrophic event, but there have actually been two of these sorts of events that were bigger than Yellowstone's last eruption when humans were on the planet. Uh, the Tobo eruption about 74,000 years ago in Indonesia and there was an eruption from the Taupo caldera system in New Zealand about uh, 26,500 years ago. So these things have happened while people have been on the planet uh, in the past, and we've clearly survived them. Uh, wouldn't be easy, but it wouldn't be the end of all life on the planet. Mm. So caldera, uh, Jamie Farrell, you want to tackle this one first. What, what are we talking about? Caldera forming event. So a caldera forming event is, is really when the, um, so underneath, current Yellowstone, there's um, uh, an area in the ground that we call the magma reservoir that um, holds, um, you know, a certain volume of, uh, of melt, but mostly hot, solid rock. Um, and when the system gets ready, or when it's, it's closer to an eruption than it is now, you get more and more of what we call melt or magma in there. And then when it erupts, that magma reservoir empties. Um, um, probably not fully, but um, it empties to a certain extent. And then there's, you know, that la that void space and the roof of that um, of that over that magma reservoir eventually collapses into that empty space and forms this caldera uh, on on the surface. Now, Mike Poland, I understand if you if you look at a topographical map of Yellowstone, or even if you I guess you go to a high point Yellowstone lookout, that you you can actually see the I guess where there aren't any mountains, right? Is that the caldera? Well, it's, it's actually a bit hard to see um, because uh, there is sort of a, a hole in the, the mountains that used to be in the Yellowstone area, but a lot of those have been replaced now by these rhyolite flows that, that Jamie mentioned. After the caldera formed uh, 630,000 years ago, there were a, a whole series of a few dozen of these lava flow eruptions, and that's gradually filled in much of the caldera. So... There's not a gigantic crater anymore that you can uh, see really easily. Uh, instead, it's sort of a, a crater that's been filled in by a bunch of, of subsequent eruptions. So it's, it's actually quite hard to get a sense uh, of this caldera from any one, one place on the ground. The best way to, to see it is uh, on a geologic map where you can actually see the ash units that radiate away from the caldera. So this, this caldera... Um, I, I, Basically, mountains collapse into it. Is that well? It it uh, it makes a hole essentially in the in whatever area that it happens to be. So, if there's a mountain range uh, 
overlying the area where the caldera ultimately forms, it sort of consumes those mountains. Mm. And that's more or less what, what happened in the Yellowstone area, where uh, there used to be mountains sort of between the Absericas and the Gallatin Range um, that were sort of these older volcanic uh, rocks that have uh, subsequently been destroyed by the Yellowstone system and, and the eruptions there. So, Jamie Farrell, uh, this, uh, the popular term is supervolcano. You know, scientists call it, you know, caldera. Very, very large, very large potential. You're saying it's more likely that, a, that smaller events would happen. Well, sure. Just like any, you know, uh, hazard assessment, the smaller, generally, the smaller um, the event, the more likely it is to happen. Um, and the, you know, the bigger cataclysmic events tend to happen less often. Um, and in fact, Yellowstone has produced many, many, many more smaller eruptions than it has supervolcanic eruptions. Um, so, you know, just given that, um, you know, what it's done in the past, it's, it's definitely more likely to produce a smaller eruption. Uh, than it would be one of these large um, caldera-forming eruptions. And, you know, in fact, you know, we are definitely not 100% sure that it will produce one of these large eruptions again. It's starting, the hot spot is starting to move into um, thicker, colder, what we call continental crust or craton, um, and it's harder for that heat to burn through that thicker, colder uh, material. And, um, you know, we don't really know how that would affect uh, the system. And, you know, by looking at some of the geophysical data we've collected, you know, right now our best estimate is that that magnet reservoir down um, beneath Yellowstone right now has about 5 to maybe 15% melt in there, and the rest of it's solid material, and that's nowhere near what we would expect a, a volcano to have that's about to erupt. So, Mike Poland, um, Yellowstone cooling off a bit, very relatively speaking. Yeah, that seems like a, a perfectly likely scenario. That uh, it, it's always difficult to know when the last event happened. You really don't know until everything's all said and done. And there's no way in our limited uh, lifespans and in, in relative ge geologic time we would ever know that that was the case. But you know, Jamie's group at the University of Utah has done a lot of work in looking at the subsurface and how the magma systems uh, are, are are situated down there and and what sort of melt exists beneath. Uh, the surface. And there's really just not that much melt compared to the amount of hot rock. So the concept that there's this gigantic cauldron of, of magma that's bubbling away beneath the surface is really not accurate. Instead, it's mostly a bunch of hot, mushy rock with a small percentage of magma that's sort of probably uh, connected in the, uh, uh, in, in the cracks that are within this mushy zone. So it may not have the potential to feed a, a, a very large eruption anymore. Jimmy Farrell, in any case, this quote-unquote supervolcano, all this, uh, you know, the activity, is this what's fueling, what fuels the geysers, the, the hot springs? Uh, 100%, yeah. So there's, there's this big heat source down there, um, like I described, the magma reservoir, and that's putting off a lot of heat as this... As this um, uh, magma cools and, and puts off all this heat and gases and and when you get meteoric water or water that's coming from um, rainfall or snowfall snowmelt um, that water kind of slowly percolates into the ground through a series of fractures and cracks and and gets heated up from all this heat coming off of the magma reservoir and then um, circulates back up to the surface um, in the form of the hydrothermal system so um, that's why Yellowstone has the highest concentration of uh, thermal features uh, on the surface of the earth. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking about volcanoes and specifically about the Yellowstone so-called supervolcano. Uh, my guests today include Michael Poland, scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor uh, in the New- University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics, and chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. We'll continue our discussion, of course, in the next segment coming up following a break. We'll get into talking about uh, geysers and hot springs and earthquakes. Uh, Quite a few earthquakes occur in Yellowstone National Park. We'll talk about the different kinds of volcanic uh, eruptions uh, and therefore the different kinds of dangers. And uh, we'll talk about the latest science in predicting volcanoes and earthquakes. You can join this conversation if you would like at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahumanities.org. This is Richard Hatch for Bringing More to Life. You love and appreciate your parents, but your parents can't tell this unless you show it by the way you treat them. We might bring heartache without realizing it. We don't call them much. We forget special events. We ask for money. We don't offer help as often as we could. We know that including them in family events can be burdensome, so the invitation isn't extended. You can make a change this very day. If you feel you can do more, it's not too late. Begin by picking up the phone and calling. I plan to call my mother as soon as this airs to see if she heard it. A simple invitation can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking about volcanoes. Volcanoes have been much in the news of late. Eruptions in Hawaii, Guatemala, most recently in Bali. And uh, you may know that Yellowstone National Park sits on a so-called supervolcano. We're talking uh, mostly about that supervolcano in Yellowstone, but we're also in this segment uh, getting into discussion of volcanoes. Uh, You may or may may not know that there are different types of volcanic eruptions, therefore different kinds of dangers. We'll talk about that in predicting uh, volcanoes and uh, earthquakes. Later in the program, we'll talk about supervolcanoes elsewhere, uh, California and elsewhere, and uh, about assessing the risk among various uh, potential natural disasters, earthquakes, wildfires, volcanoes. Uh, we'll talk about risk, uh, probability, awareness, and preparedness as we go along. You can join this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're talking with Michael Pollan, scientist in charge at the Yellowstone National or Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, rather, and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor in the University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics. He's chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Mike Poland, I was uh, I went over to the USGS uh, uh, site there, the Yellowstone Observatory, and uh, I looked at the site. It was kind of kind of interesting that uh, people can get involved with predicting or not predicting, I guess, but looking at the signs for uh, certain geysers uh, when when they're going to erupt and and the buildup. Yeah. So 
Yeah, of, of late, um, we've seen some uh, neat activity at Steamboat Geyser, and that has uh, the cachet of being the tallest geyser in the world that can erupt up to about 300 feet high. Uh, and it's a very impressive sight when it happens. In fact, Jamie can tell you more about that because he was one of the lucky few that's actually seen it erupt. Um, but it, it's, it's get, it captivates people. And so uh, we've been trying to keep track on the, the YVO website of the times that it's erupted in, 20, uh, in 2018. And also what signs to look for if you're scanning through data feeds to see whether or not there's been an eruption, looking at seismic data, looking at the temperature sensors that we have installed there, even looking at the stream gauge for the uh, creek that drains the entire Norris Geyser Basin. When steamboat erupts, it put out, puts out enough water that we actually see a, a spike in the discharge of that creek. So there's some fun ways you can follow along, uh, even if you can't get to Yellowstone like Jamie has, to enjoy the site yourself. Yeah, it seemed like uh, seemed like a kind of a fun thing. So Jamie Farrell, you have seen Steamboat erupt? Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough. Well, um, Steamboat started erupting um, earlier this year, um, and we went in and put in um, a number of seismometers around it to try to record, you know, the signals related to those eruptions. And um, on the day that we were pulling um, the instruments out, um, it erupted while we were there. So I was lucky enough to see the eruption, and uh, it definitely is something that I'll never forget. Um, it's pretty powerful and pretty awe-inspiring seeing that thing go and shoot water up. You know, when I was there, I... I, I don't know exactly how high it was, but it was more than 200 feet, I would estimate. Um, and just hearing um, the power of that eruption and seeing it shoot out, you know, baseball-sized rocks as it's pushing out all that water. And, um, yeah, so it was pretty, pretty amazing to see um, the power of, of, of that system um, as Steamboat Geyser. So a few have seen it because it's irregular, that, Correct. It, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't go off very, very regularly. In fact, most geysers don't go off regularly. Mm-hmm. Old Faithful is kind of more of the exception than the rule. Um, most geysers are not predictable, um, and Steamboat um, is definitely not predictable. Um, this year has been a little bit anomalous. It's, it's, it's happened before where it's been as active as it is uh, this year, but it's also had, you know, 20-plus years in between eruptions. Um so uh, it's been um, pretty neat to see the amount of interest in Steamboat Geyser uh, this year. So tell me about Old Faithful. That's I mean it's it's a big attraction because it is faithful, right? I mean you have the cartoons of the of the park ranger uh, out back uh, turning on the faucet, you know. But that I'm sure that's not the explanation. Well, Old Faithful is is uh, is famous. I you know this is my own personal opinion for two reasons. It's the best combination of um, of height and predictiveness. So you, you can predict it um, pretty closely, and it's relatively tall. So those two uh, factors together make it very popular, um, and it's just grown in popularity um, throughout time. It was popular when people first started seeing it, because they could, they could tell that it erupted pretty regularly. Um, but now, um, you know, you get a lot of people around Old Faithful to watch it erupt every 90 or so minutes. Mm. Mike Poland, what what are the factors that go into that? Uh, Old Faithful erupts every 90 minutes or so, and a steamboat, you you just don't know. Yeah, we, we don't. That's, I think that's uh, partially reflecting the fact that steamboat uh, is irregular, and many geysers are, and Old Faithful is more regular. We tend to study those phenomena that we know we're going to learn something from. So 
we know that if we deploy sensors around Old Faithful or, or spend a lot of time examining it, we will see eruptions. Whereas if you put uh, an extensive seismic deployment around Steamboat, for example, you aren't guaranteed that you would catch uh, an eruption. And I think uh, Jamie's group has shown exactly that. He did a, a wonderful deployment for several years around Old Faithful, and they've learned a tremendous amount about the underground plumbing system of that geyser. And then recognizing that Steamboat had entered this more active phase, they took advantage of that and deployed sensors around Steamboat as well. And I think it's that sort of research that might allow us to ultimately learn more about what some of these uh, intermittent geysers look like and why they, they don't erupt with, with such regularity and then places like Old Faithful do. So, Jamie Farrell, it's, it's the underground plumbing system, quote-unquote, that makes a... Yeah, so one, one hypothesis is that, you know, um, you know, Old Faithful, even though it's in the upper geyser basin and close to a lot of other features, it's kind of isolated. Um, there's not a lot of activity around Old Faithful itself. It's kind of all by itself. Um, when, you know, Steamboat, on the, on the other hand, is clearly connected to all these other features nearby. Um, and so I think that has something to do with it. So Old Faithful basically has its own plumbing system. Um, all the heat and the hot water that come up go to only to Old Faithful. So it can be more regular like that. And Steamboat has to share that with all these other features around there. So that makes it more unpredictable because it depends on where the heat and where the, where the water is going. It might go to this system here. It might go to another system. It might come up to Steamboat. Um, it all really depends. Um, and then also the North Geyser Basin and um, where Steamboat is uh, and the Upper Geyser Basin where Old Faithful is are, are really different systems. Um, North Geyser Basin is much hotter, uh, much more dynamic. There's a lot more changes going on in North Geyser Basin. So it's just a more dynamic area by Norris, which may uh, contribute to um, Steamboat being more dynamic as well. There are earthquakes, I believe, in Yellowstone, or, uh, you know, seismic activity. There's lots of them, yeah. So Yellowstone averages about anywhere from about 1,500 to 2,500 earthquakes a year. Um, of course, the the vast majority of those, 99%, are too small for for people to feel. Um, but uh, we have a network of instruments of seismometers uh, in and around the park that are constantly recording that ground motion. Um, and like I said, we we record a, you know anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 earthquakes a year in Yellowstone. I'd like to return to, uh, to volcanic activity. Um, Mike Poland, I'm sure, scientists such as yourself would l would love to uh, have better and better predictive sources, right? Uh, predict when events are going to happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's uh, exactly the reason that we do what we do. I think the fundamental goal of volcanology is to learn more about how volcanoes work so that we can better forecast their behavior. And that gets at doing a better job of... Uh, being able to warn people of hazards. So, for example, being able to know that Fuego was going to have the, the sort of um, large eruption that it did, or that uh, Bali, uh, the Agung volcano in Bali, might become more active. Um, some of these volcanoes are really uh, rough because they sort of percolate along for a while. Um, Bali had been, or Agung in Bali had been erupting at a fairly low level for months, and Fuego is persistently active. How is it we know when activity is going to ramp up? So a lot of what we're doing, even at volcanoes that don't erupt with a lot of regularity, is trying to learn the signs that might show some change is imminent. And then we try to apply those lessons uh, to volcanoes around the world. So certainly I think as volcanologists we all want to be able to forecast better 
because ultimately that's um, what we can do to reduce the uh, the risks to, to people from volcanic hazards. And even apart from uh, forecasting, I'll return to this a little bit later, um, I, I've been doing a little bit of reading and, and uh, learning the, the different types of volcanoes produce different hazards. And uh, this is perhaps one reason why quite a few people died at Fuego, uh, you know, and uh, not as many, of course, at Kilauea. I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, about that. It seemed, you look at the pictures from Fuego, they're, you know, big, very tall cloud of, uh, you know, ash and gas coming toward people. And uh, Kilauea, it's, uh, it, it's, it's mainly the, uh, the lava flows that we're kind of more familiar with. Right. We tend to have uh, a lot of thoughts that all volcanoes erupt the same way, that there are all these big catastrophic explosions. And, in fact, a lot of the questions we get related to Kilauea's eruption is, uh, oh, I heard it's going to erupt just like Mount St. Helens. And different volcanoes give us different hazards. So Kilauea is, is more of a lava-producing volcano. It can experience explosions, and we can see in the geologic record that it has, but they've been nothing like uh, Mount St. Helens-sized explosions from, from 1980. So that's often related to the setting of the volcano, where uh, on Earth it's located, and the, the sort of specific uh, geology of that area, and also the composition of the magma that's feeding the volcano. Um, some of the, the magmas that, that come in are very low in silica, and that allows gas to percolate through the, the magma, not build up in the magma. Other volcanoes uh, have a higher silica magma that traps gas within the magma, and, and that's when you have a, the potential for a lot of big explosions, is when, uh, when this sort of gassy magma gets close to the surface and then can lose all this gas all at once, like, uh, like shaking a soda and opening it up. Mm. And understand that uh, it, maybe some people didn't understand. You know, they're, they're looking for the lava flow and understand that sometimes it's very slow. When in Fuego, you have this uh, gas cloud that comes toward you, and that could kill you. Yeah, right. The, the flows at Kilauea, the, the lava flows, they can move quickly. But for the most part, and there's a couple exceptions to this, but for the most part, lava flows are something that you can walk away from. Uh, in these more explosive volcanoes, you can get ash flows, where there's literally clouds of ash that rush down the volcanic flanks, uh, sometimes at hundreds of miles an hour. And there's no way you can outrun that. Uh, that's a, a searing uh, cloud of, of gas and, and ash that uh, just destroys everything it touches. So the, the hazards are, are quite a bit more uh, pronounced at some of the volcanoes with these very fast-acting hazards. Um, the lava flow hazards you can generally move away from, but that's not always the case. And, of course, you can always get trapped uh, in those sort of lava flow situations. So um, the hazards are a bit different, but, uh, but the realities and the destruction that these volcanoes cause uh, are pretty extreme, regardless of the type you're looking at. Jamie Farrell, uh, I want to talk about, about back to prediction, which is you know the holy grail uh, to protect ourselves um, where we can. Where, where are we with predicting volcanoes, or perhaps earthquake, and maybe compare and contrast the two? Well, earthquakes we can't predict at all. Um, We've tried for a long time to try to figure out if there's any kind of precursory activity to to large earthquakes, and um, thus far it's been elusive, and there just doesn't seem to be anything um, anything there. Um, but luckily with volcanoes, they tend to put, not all the time, but a lot of times they tend to put out precursory signals before eruptions. And some of those signals are earthquakes. Um, some of those signals are, are ground deformation. 
um, increased gas output, changes in the hydrothermal system, all that stuff. Um, and not coincidentally, that's the kind of things that we monitor for um, at, at a lot of volcanoes and definitely at Yellowstone. Um, so, you know, when you have such a um, kind of good monitoring system like we have at Yellowstone, it's one of the best monitored volcanoes on Earth. Um, and we have this long record or relatively long record um, of, of observing these things, um, earthquakes, ground deformation, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. We kind of know what the normal is, at least we think we do, what the normal is. And, and, and like Mike said earlier, we're looking for these changes or these deviations um, from what we think the background normal level is. Um, and a lot of times it's not just one thing that changes. Um, it has to, it's, usually it's multiple things that change at the same time. For example, in Yellowstone, we get a lot of what we call earthquake swarms, where you have a lot of earthquakes happening um, confined in time and space, so just clusters of earthquakes happening. And, you know, if you looked at that by itself, people might think, oh, there's all these earthquakes happening. Uh, Yellowstone's about to erupt, and in, in fact, when that happens, we get a lot of uh, web traffic to that effect. Um, but usually, you know, None of them so far have led to eruptions, and usually it's only changes in one thing. Usually you only see increases in seismic activity and nothing else changes. You know, if we start seeing changes, you know, in seismic activity, uh, ground deformation, increased gas output, and uh, big changes in the hydrothermal system, then that might throw up a red flag that we would say, you know, something is happening underground, magma is moving closer to the surface. Um, and hopefully that would give us, um, you know, some uh, type of, a warning or able to predict that something was going to happen, um, whether that time is, you know, days, weeks, months, I don't know what that would be um, right now, but hopefully it would give us some sort of uh, precursor, um, you know, warning that, that magma was moving closer to the surface. Mike Poland, uh, keeping it with the prediction, uh, uh, what don't we know that you, you know, what, what's the next horizon? What do you wish we knew it, and to be able to better predict? Man, there's there's so many things. Um, I I think in some ways uh, we need to understand why some of our standard models of, of how volcanoes work don't um, don't always work. Uh, for example, this volcano in Indonesia in, in Bali that's been been acting up Agung, uh, it has mostly gotten magma to the surface without deforming the surface. Um, it's not a lot of magma, but it's gotten enough to the surface where you think, well, how did it manage to move up the pipe from, from great depth to the surface and not show any sign of surface deformation, not really push anything out of the way? Um, certainly there were other signs. So Jamie had, had mentioned here, we don't just rely on a single monitoring method. There's no one magic monitoring bullet. We have to look at a lot of different signals. But I think there are, are questions as to, to why certain volcanoes do or don't behave in the kind of standard way or the expected way, um, that's something I'd really like to, to know more about because then we might be able to know whether or not a volcano should be uh, trusted to give deformation or, or seismicity. Um, that's generally for these smaller sorts of uh, eruptions or, or volcanoes that are, we call them open vent volcanoes where they're very frequently active. Often they don't give the traditional signs. Um, I think for, for bigger systems that haven't erupted in a long time, it's much harder for them to sneak past us because they need to reactivate in order to, uh, to, to get up enough magma to the point where they could erupt. So systems that haven't erupted in a long time or systems that are really big are more likely to show these sorts of signs than some of these smaller ones that are erupting all the time.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, my thanks to my guests for this hour. We'll uh, come back for a last segment with them. My guests include Michael Poland, scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor in the University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics and chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, so-called supervolcanoes elsewhere. We've been talking about the one in uh, Yellowstone, under Yellowstone. Uh, There are supervolcanoes in California and elsewhere. We'll talk about also assessing risk. We'll talk about risk, probability, and awareness, and preparedness. And we'll talk about the very latest science and uh, how you can get involved uh, in uh, learning the latest uh, science. All of that coming in our next segment as our discussion on volcanoes and uh, the Yellowstone National Park supervolcano continues following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau showcasing access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com. Ah, parenting. So much good advice. You know, you should never kiss your child, you should never hug your child, you should never put your child on your knee. I'm Stephen Dubner. In the next hour of Freakonomics Radio, we send economists into the cold, cruel world of parenting expertise. Turns out, it's full of people who just don't know the data. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. How many friends do you really have? Even if you count everyone you know or like on Facebook or Instagram, it's probably going to add up to one number. You've only got 150 slots for friends and family generally. The digital world isn't really going to change that. How our networks work? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment on volcanoes. There have been eruptions in Hawaii and Guatemala and uh, Bali for recent. Uh, volcanoes, much in the news. We're talking about it, and uh, we're especially concentrating on the so called Yellowstone Super Volcano. It's a caldera volcano, as uh, scientists uh, call it. It's 44 miles wide uh, and is under uh, much of Yellowstone National Park. And we're talking about uh, all of uh, this and related topics with Michael Poland, scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor in the U.S. University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics. Uh, he's chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Understand uh, there are other uh, caldera Volcanoes, so-called supervolcanoes. Uh, for example, California near Yosemite National Park. 
Yeah, the Long Valley caldera uh, is located um, not uh, not far east of Yosemite. Uh, it's near uh, south of Mono Lake, near the town of uh, Mammoth Lakes. Um, Long Valley erupted you know, about 700,000 years ago, um, and it's had a number of lava flow eruptions as well. And in fact, uh, it has a whole chain of lava flows that trend north um, from the caldera in Long Valley up to Mono Lake. And the last eruption there was maybe only a few hundred years ago. Um, there's a, a good record of eruptions in the last several thousand years. So um, that's certainly a, a very active volcanic area, not necessarily going to be a big caldera eruption. Uh, that may very well have been uh, spent, but there's a, a lot of magma in the area that could come up in, in one of these uh, small lava dome eruptions. There's a, a caldera in uh, New Mexico as well that erupted uh, a little over a million years ago called Valles, located not far from Los Alamos. Um, that one has some nice uh, hydrothermal activity in it, nothing near what, what Yellowstone does, but uh, impressive, and it's got some lava flows that last erupted a few tens of thousands of years ago. So that's a potentially active system as well, although we think that also may not have the potential to have a, a large devastating eruption anymore. Uh, instead, mm -hmm. it may just uh, sort of be petering out and, and just have a few more lava flows left, if anything. I want to uh, uh, read a quote from uh, this Washington Post article I've made reference to before and get reaction from each of you. I'll start with Mike Poland on this. Um, let's see, quoting from Joe Lockenbach's article here. Um, and he quotes Margaret Mangan, a scientist in charge of the USGS California Volcano Observatory. She said there are seven volcanic regions in California with zones of molten rock beneath the surface. A volcanic eruption in California is roughly as likely as a magnitude 6 or greater earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, according to her. But Californians, she said, don't worry about volcanoes. They worry about earthquakes, tsunamis, and wildfires. She's tried to help raise public awareness of the hazards. And then she says this, the awareness level and preparedness level is quite low in the state. We prepare for these large earthquake events. We need to prepare for the volcanic eruptions. So, Mike Pollan, you first, um, talking about risk, which gets into probability, but also awareness. And uh, understandably, Californians are <laughs> worried about earthquakes, wildfires. They see those uh, more frequently. Should they and we, you know, how worried should we be How and how to prepare? Well, I think one of the advantages that we have uh, in terms of assessing volcanic hazards is we know where the volcanoes are. Um, we know that there's, for example, seven volcanic areas in, in California that have some amount of magma in the subsurface. So that allows us to prepare the communities that are in those areas, as we know that eruptions could happen in the future in, in these specific areas. Uh, that's a, a bit different than something like uh, wildfires, which can happen um, most places, or an earthquake, which uh, actually much of California is at risk from uh, a strong earthquake. And we don't know where the next one of those will happen. So we have some built-in advantages. You know, Jamie talked about the fact that uh, volcanoes give warning signs generally before they erupt, and then uh, we also know where they are. So we have some advantages when it comes to preparing for um, volcanic activity that we should take advantage of um, in, in knowing that they give signs and knowing where they're located. Um, it, it, the hazards in other places may not be quite as severe for, for volcanoes. In the uh, Intermountain West, a lot of the hazard is, is more earthquake-related, um, and we can see that uh, historically with some of the magnitude 6 and 7 earthquakes that have happened. Uh, so I, I think uh, we, we need to be sensitive to all of the types of hazards that you're subject to wherever you live. And, uh, and that's going to vary from place to place. Jimmy Farrell, the same question to you. Where do we, how do we assess the risk? Um, and, and then that's connected to preparedness. 
Yeah, so I would say, you know, use the word worried. Um, I don't know if that's quite the right word to use. I mean, we get a lot of calls here. Um, people ask, I guess, if they should be worried about Yellowstone eruptions and should they cancel their plans to go to Yellowstone. And the, the, the answer is definitely no. Uh, Yellowstone's a great place to, to visit. You can see some things that you can't see anywhere else in the world. Um, everybody should have a chance to see that. Um, and you definitely should not be worried about an eruption uh, in Yellowstone. It's, it's, it's very unlikely. Um, but you should appreciate what the hazards and what the risks are of any, anything you're doing. For example, if you live in an area that's prone to wildfires, you, you, know, you need to understand that. You need to know what you're up against and how you can, what you can do to mitigate uh, that risk. And uh, earthquakes and volcanoes are no different. Um, you know, people, if it makes sense to them, they can get earthquake insurance. Um, you know, you can get fire insurance. You can get flood insurance. All these things are steps that you can take to mitigate that risk or to be prepared for any type of disaster, whether it's a natural disaster, financial disaster, anything. Um, being prepared for something is always a good idea, um, and volcanic eruptions is no different. I wonder, um, Mike Poland, if you could tell me a little bit about some of the latest science. I've been reading a bit about uh, back to volcanoes um, in the supervolcano there. Uh, a study out of University of Oregon, which is advancing science a little bit on on uh, the the Yellowstone volcano. Yeah, there's a lot of neat studies coming out right now about Yellowstone. Um, some of them are, the, I, I guess, I see them in coming from two different directions. Some of them are looking at uh, products of eruptive, uh, past eruptive episodes, whether they're lava flows or ash flows, and trying to uh, reconstruct the magma system that existed when these things erupted and, and get a clue of, of how long the magma might have been accumulating beneath the caldera prior to a lava erupting or an, an ash flow erupting. And then uh, there are other studies, like the one from the, the University of Oregon, that approach it from a modeling perspective that look at the data we have now or in the, the structure that we know about. Say, so how did we get to this place that we're at now? How did we build the magmatic system that exists at Yellowstone. And so, specifically in the Oregon study, they tried to come up with a way that some of the data that Jamie's group collected could be explained. How was the, the crustal structure and how did the magma intrude in such a way that you could get this sort of architecture for the magmatic system that we see today? And I think this is actually a good uh, example of the way science works. Um, we, we tend to approach it from multiple different directions by uh, by looking at uh, primary data that we may collect from the rocks, from uh, gases that may be released, or, or water, or changes in earthquakes or deformation and so forth. And then we also try to construct models, whether they're conceptual models and cartoons, or whether they're driven by uh, computer modeling. Um, it, it's a, a way of trying to explain the sorts of data that, uh, that we're collecting in the field. Jamie Farrell, uh, same question to you. Uh, what uh, new science got you excited about volcanoes or, or earthquakes? Well, I'll relate this to the question you asked earlier. You asked, "What's the you know the one thing that I think that I think we should know better um, about about the Yellowstone system?" Um, and for me, um, that is the nature of that magma reservoir. You know, how is how much melt is down there? How is it situated? And, and a lot of these new studies that are coming out are, are trying to get at that answer. 
because um, if we know that, we can kind of know where we're at in the eruptive process uh, in the cycle. Um, you know, when, when the, some of the stuff that I've done, you know, using geophysical techniques to image that magma reservoir, you know, we, we don't get a perfect view of that. We get a very kind of fuzzy um, view of what's underneath the ground. You know, I mentioned earlier that we, we predict or, or we estimate that there's anywhere from 5 to 15% meltdown there, and that's really just an average uh, number over the entire system. We don't know how that melt is situated. If that melt is kind of evenly distributed throughout the whole magma reservoir, it doesn't pose that much of a threat right now because there's just not enough of it to, to, to make an eruption. But if that 5 to 15% is all situated in one little pocket in there, that could potentially be enough um, magma to mobilize and to make it to the surface and pr create a smaller, a, a small volcanic eruption. Um, we don't know how that melt is situated down there, and a lot of these new studies um, are aimed at trying to figure that out. And that's what's exciting to me is that, you know, hopefully we're moving towards getting that answer of uh, how much melt is down there and uh, how is it sitting down there and, and what does that um, mean as far as potential for uh, future volcanic eruptions. Coming down to the end of our time, I want to return to uh, something we talked about earlier in, the, in our conversation, because I know some people want to engage. They're excited about uh, the science, whatever science they're um, interested in. I got a bit excited when I went to the USGS uh, site and saw that I could engage with, uh, you know, the steamboat uh, geyser, maybe starting with Jer uh, Jamie Farrell on this. How, how can uh, lay people... Um, non-scientists get involved, more involved with the science? Well, there's a lot of information on, on the web pages, both through uh, the USGS, the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website, um, through our website, the University of Utah Seismograph Stations, and others. Um, you know, a lot of our data is up there in real time, and people can log on and see um, when was the last earthquake, where it was, um, you know, where do earthquakes are happening, if there's a swarm, where is a swarm happening, um, you know, you can, like you said, the steamboat stuff, um, they put up, we, we, you know, we put up there, you know, these are the things that you can look at to see if, um, you know, to see steamboat activity. Um, you can go on and, and, and just see a, a number of things to see what activity is happening right now. And, and this isn't just Yellowstone. This is really um, at many, many systems uh, throughout the world. Um, there's webcams that you can look at to see um, things, you know, right now, the webcams in Hawaii are amazing. Um, you can see, you know, active stuff happening right now in Hawaii. And, and uh, you know, just get as much information as you can. Ask questions. The people in Yellowstone are, are uh, pretty well aware of, 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 of the volcanic and the situation, and they're more than happy to explain um, that system to you. There's a, there's a number of people that go through Yellowstone and have no idea that they're sitting in one of the world's largest volcanoes. Um, and I think the interpreters there would be more than happy to explain that uh, to, to these people, and, and I think it would make their trip that much better. Mike Pollan, same question to you. How can people get engaged, get more engaged with the science? Well, I, I'd certainly echo what Jamie said. The, the data are out there on uh, the YVO website, on the University of Utah website, um, and, and on uh, the UNAVCO website. Uh, they've got a lot of the geodetic data, a lot of the deformation data. So there's ways to explore yourself, uh, the earthquakes that are happening, how the ground is moving, the, the, whether or not certain geysers are erupting. Well, you can watch webcams, look at uh, creek discharge. So there's a, a lot of fun ways you can 
uh, explore what's happening. Um, and that's without even going there. And of course, going to Yellowstone is the, the ultimate thrill. I think it's the biggest perk of, of the jobs that we have is that we get to spend so much time in in America's first national park. Uh, it's, it's a national park for a reason. It's spectacular and made even more so by, by the great geology. We're also trying to put out more information. So everyone in the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory Consortium contributes to writing a weekly article, which uh, we call Yellowstone Caldera Chronicles. And it's got a bit of history, a bit of current activity, uh, lots of information about what's happening in Yellowstone and, and neat new science that we publish on the YVO website uh, every Monday. So um, we're trying to, to put more out there because it's, it's clear that people want to know more about, about Yellowstone. And, and there's a lot of information there, so we're trying to make that more accessible every day. Well, gentlemen, 